Welcome to series two of The Jewelarian with me, Josie Goodbody, jewelry historian, jewelry lover, and author of the Jemima Fox jewelry mystery stories. Hello, and here we are back at Wartsky on St. James's Street in London for the second part of my exclusive interview with Kieran McCarthy, curator of the V&A's exhibition, Fabergé in London, Romance to Revolution. This interview was recorded in collaboration with the V&A Museum. So we've covered the, the, the collection of, the Sandringham collection. I was thinking my father-in-law is a bar, bison farmer. I was thinking maybe <laughs> I should uh, see if I can get a, a nephrite bison. <laughs> well, that, actually, Fabergé did do a bison. Did they? He did. He did an obsidian one. And of course, obsidian is the, um, the Caucasian volcanic glass. And it has a black sheen to it, which is like a bison's um, Oh, my gosh. Hide. I wonder if I should buy that for him for Christmas. Mm, I don't know. That, that was a Wartsky. Take a few sort of memory jumps to um, remember where it is now. But there is there was definitely a Fabergé bison. That's incredible. Yeah. And I wonder if there are any pictures of it anywhere. I think there are. I I think there, there are some I'll... in our archive. We'll try oh, really? Yes, would you? We'll try and find you one. Oh, well, there, I'll, there was... I'll give him a photo well, yeah. of it rather was... than the actual one itself. <laughs> There was also a Fabergé Tyrannosaurus Rex as well. No, well, my son would absolutely <laughs> love that. Well, the thing about the Tyrannosaurus Rex is that somebody else's son loved it a bit too much and broke the tail off it. No. But if you've got to imagine, these are little toys. And yeah. So if you were a child, they're toys for grown-ups. And I think toys for grown-ups can just transfer for toys for children. Totally. And I mean, my, my children love kind of you know, going into my jewellery box and picking things out. And I've got some incredible, I was telling you, some amazing um, costume jewellery. And I've got butterflies and, you know, stunning butterflies, which are not cheap, although they're costume. They're beautifully made by this brand, Panetta. And my my son and, and daughter keep taking them out and flying them around. And I'm like, no, no, where, no, where have you put it? Kind of thing, you know, and kind of dropping it on the floor. And I think, my God, no. They're not play. They're not plastic. <laughs> throw, throw it out the window to see if his wings flat. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god. Um, so, so although Fabergé had the, their um, store on Regent Street, wasn't it? The, the Bond, f- Street. Bond Street. Bond Street. Wartsky was the first. Yeah, Wartsky was on Regent Street originally, and they were old Bond Street. Yeah. Um, they never had a workshop here. No, they didn't. Almost there is one instance where they sold works that were produced in Britain but they didn't have an established um, British workshop. All of the other pieces, bar this one peculiar instance, came from Russia. And did they have, did they stock jewellery in their store on Old Bond Street? Oh definitely, definitely, absolutely yeah. So when we spoke about pieces, when I said oh, where, you know, where are lots of the pieces of jewellery that Fabergé made, mm. a lot of them had been broken down, yeah. obviously not the ones that were sold here. No, no, we have... Unlikely to have. No, I mean, there's much less likelihood of them being broke down, but then it's just, where are they? Yeah. You know, we some do survive, and we do have one which we um, have, the Princess Victoria Amethyst, in the exhibition. There's also a wonderful brooch bought by a member of the Rothschild family. But they are few and far between. They really are, and I, I don't quite know the reasons for that. Perhaps they're... It's so sad that all this... You know, Alma Peel, how do I pronounce it? Peel? Ah, no, Alma Peel wants no, because Alma Peel's jewels were made f- in St. Petersburg. And they didn't cut, she wouldn't have sent them over There here. is a chance that some of them would have come, but the winter jewels, I'm not sure a winter jewel was ever sold in London. They were the preserve of Emmanuel Nobel. And so they probably still exist. 
Oh, they, they do. They, do. They, they come up every once in a while. Manuel Noble. You don't have any at the exhibition. We do. We oh, do. Wow. Oh, no, we've got a great oh, um, show. Of, oh, no, the Winter Jewels are a star part of the exhibition. We have two snowflakes, which are just, they are the most beautifully stripped back, elegant pieces of jewellery. So we have two snowflakes. Which, both, are, which are earrings? No, no, brooches. Brooches. And they're about an inch across. And if you imagine the sort of the, the fractured design of a snowflake, they are that, but set in diamonds. We have a necklace of melting rock crystal platinum and diamond um, ice, melting ice. And then we have a shard of rock crystal, which is almost like an icicle um, as, as a pendant. And then... I didn't quite say it yet, but I think we are very close to also having the winter egg in the exhibition. So um, that's maybe jinxing fate, but we should hopefully have the winter egg. Oh as my well. gosh, I have just got a shiver down my spine, <laughs> a very appropriate shiver. Well, I hope by the time this goes up, we do actually well, have I'll it and, and, and not have it. But uh, <laughs> I, I think we are going to have it. Um, and so. In how, how long did they have the boutique in London for? Well, it was opened in 1903. It went, it was incredibly discreet originally in London. It was an office um, actually on Oxford Street, on the corner of Oxford Street and Duke Street, which leads down to um, Barclay Square. Um, is it Barclay Square? Yeah, it is Barclay Square. No. no, it's not Barclays Square. Where's the embassy? Grosvenor Square. Grosvenor Square. Grosvenor Square. Which I means, suddenly got my yeah, when I was no, thinking. No, yeah. So yeah, it was on the corner of Duke Street and Oxford Street, so just up from Grosvenor Square. But it was almost by word of mouth alone. You could be walking along the street and you'd have no, no idea yeah. that Fabergé was upstairs. And Fabergé's business originally in London was all about introduction. You had to be introduced to it to know it existed. Oh, really? So it was incredibly exclusive, and all, and that's reflected in its relationships with its customers, because they knew them, they yeah. knew who they were, and you you couldn't really wander into Fabergé without knowing, prior to going, you know, what was going on within those walls. In 1911, they moved to New Bond Street rather than Old Bond Street. And that's where they had their grand premises, you know, their grand retail. Yeah. Bond Street was the premier retail thoroughfare probably in the world at this stage. Really? And, and Fabergé opened there, and they opened one door away from Cartier. So there was Cartier, there was um, a little bookshop, and then there was Fabergé. And so these two sort of behemoths of jewellery yeah. were battling it out on Bond Street in the 1910s. And with Garrard around the corner. Yeah, Garrard's around the corner. But then, of course, you know, um, Boucheron was there, La Cloche was there. Oh. And, of course, this is, I think, the, the reasons why Fabergé established themselves in London are mirrored there. You know, this Cartier had the customers, Boucheron had the customers, La Cloche. There was an environment in which the ownership and acquisition of great jewellery was something to aspire to. I think Tiffany's first European outpost was in London, wasn't it? Tiffany's, yeah. But quite, but extraordinary, quite late. Yeah, was it in Burlington Street? I think it could have been it was. around. Because um, Tiffany were quite an amazingly dynamic business yeah. too because they bought Fabergé works of art and then took them back to America, engraved Tiffany on them and sold no. them. But they did it for Closnay enamels, they did it for glass, they did it for many different um, arenas. <clears throat> so I wonder if you were to buy, you, you were to find something... How would you know whether it was tif whether it was Fabergé? There is a Tiffany Fabergé bell push. It has both hallmarks on it. Okay. And so it has the original Fabergé hallmarks. And there was an exhibition um, in Cleveland 
of Tiffany Fabergé and Lalique, which seems like an odd um, conglomeration, and it is an old conglomeration, but there are crossovers between them. And this bell push, which is a, a Bowenite bell push, um, was made by Fabergé but retailed by Tiffany in America. Oh. And of course, you've got to think a Fabergé bell push was the ultimate status symbol. Because if you had a Fabergé bell push, you could afford to shop at Fabergé, which was no mean feat because no. you know these were expensive things. Also, when you press the button, somebody came Good. running, so you had servants. Um, so you shopped a Fabergé, you had yes. servants, but then also they were wired for electricity, so your house was electrified. You know, they were like the iPads of their time. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I remember when I was staying with my aunt in, in Buenos Aires, and she's a very wealthy and amazing apartment, and I remember the first time I went there, and we went for dinner, and, and I went for dinner there. And she suddenly pressed something under the table by her foot. And in came her maid to clear it away. And I thought, gosh, I really should come yeah. and live here. Yeah, well, well, the problem for me, darling, is whenever I press one, nobody comes. <laughs> exactly. No, shut up. <laughs> Get it yourself. Um, so, right. I'm trying to kind of get my head back to... Um, can we now... Uh, hold on. I've almost run out of questions, but there's so much to talk about. So I'm feeling a bit kind of... Um, is there anything else about the kind of the London one that you think is is interesting to kind of talk about? Oh, there's there's lots. The exhibition has many layers to it. There's, there's quite a narrative, and I think we sort of begin by introducing who Fabergé is. Yeah, actually, we have to sort of set the scene, but then we very quickly move into that story of London, and it is one of it is a relationship. It's a relationship between patron and craftsman, and we in that main body of the exhibition we explore that and it, it's about who was buying them why they were buying them and the different areas of society that were doing it and Fabergé in London was blessed in many many ways but one of its main blessings was that in 1911 when Fabergé eventually opened the grand shop on New Bond Street is that in London, everybody loved Russia. There was Russomania. It was there was a fascination with Russian culture at that time. The Ballet Russe had premiered at Covent Garden in 1911, and sort of swept English society along with all of the design and that sort of raw sexuality of yeah. it, which had just completely sort of opened. British eyes to this Russian, almost sort of oriental magnificence that was represented in the ballet. And so that was coursing through the veins of English society. And then along came Fabergé and opened up on Bond Street with these meticulously worked pieces of goldsmith's um, creations. And the two sort of coincided to present a picture of Russia as this beautifully artistic place filled with craftsmen able to make the most delicious works of art. And so this was reflected all the way through British society and there was a, a distinct Russomania here. And of course there were many, if we think of London now, it's sort of often full of Moscow on Thames. Yeah. We have so many Russians living in London. But there were also a lot of Russians living in London mm. in 1911. And so that idea of a shared... English-Russian sort of culture and English-Russian sort of identity was as much then as there is it now. Is now. Yeah. And of course, I mean, there is something that is so... I mean, I, when we spoke on the phone, I told you about how my, my father, who'd sadly died six weeks ago, was the one who just really got me interested in, in Russia at quite a young age and would tell stories of 
you know, War and Peace and um, Dr. Spargo, but in a kind of childish, you know what mm. I mean, turn them a bit into, into, into kind of bedtime stories. Not quite so much War but the love stories yes, and all those kind of yeah. things. And he was madly in love with Julie Christie, of course. <laughs> like, I think everyone was. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so um, I've always had this kind of, you know, fascination of this country and it was amazing being able to go to St. Petersburg. But the Fabergé Museum there is relatively new. It seems amazing that it's, um, it seems quite extraordinary that it's taken so long it took so long to have a particular magazine, um, magazine a particular museum for Fabergé yeah. out there. I think there are... Well, the Russians sold a lot of Fabergé off, so that's, so that's <clears> yeah. the first thing, which I think sort of uh, denuded them of the ability to have a Fabergé museum. The Kremlin have always had a Fabergé collection. Yeah. In fact, they have the largest holding of Easter eggs anywhere in the world. They have ten. But, um, yeah, that the Fabergé museum is a remarkable phenomenon, but it's part of... It's a product of that desire and that post sort of you know glasnost perestroika modern russian desire to return to yeah. russia what what is russian repatriate yeah. all, all their all kind the of works, works of art, art. And, and of course when you think of russia it's you know there are great artists and there are many many different um, disciplines in which in which russia has triumphed but the most popular and the most sort of um magnificent I suppose is is Fabergé yeah and so the desire to repatriate Fabergé to Russia is intense and Victor Vexelberg who opened the Fabergé what a brilliant museum, name oh it's, it, it's oh, Victor Vexelberg forgive, forgive, forgive me Victor, it almost sounds like a Bond villain it does yeah. just like that but um and actually Victor Vexelberg and there's, there's another chap called Vladimir Voronchenko and he's the um the head of Mr Vexelberg's foundation so yes but they are Bond villain Russian names, but, <laughs> but they they're are, not actually Bond they're villains. Not actually Bond villains. <laughs> they are um, they've they've done a great service to Saint Petersburg, and they have established the Fabergé Museum there, and have repatriated um, works by Fabergé to their home city. And in fact, there are nine Easter eggs in the Fabergé Museum, and it's just across the river, the Fontanka, from the Inishkov Palace. And that's where the eggs resided originally. So it's as though they've returned, not quite home, but near enough home by going to St. Petersburg. And um, can we then now go with, with that kind, in that vein, can we perhaps go back to um, talking about um, Snowman, the, the Kenneth Snowman, Wartsky, and also this man called Armand Hamner. Hammer. Yeah. Is it Hammer or Hammer? Hammer. 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 Who, didn't he befriend... Um, a lot of the, the the Russian aristocrats, yeah, and then kind of managed to kind of slightly persuade them to sell their. You've got it ever so got the time frame ever so slightly wrong. What Armand Hammer did, um, Armand Hammer. It's such an unusual name, Armand Hamner. And right? his relation is, is this film star, isn't it? Arnie Hamner. Oh, it could well Hammer, be. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they're great-grandson. Great, yeah. great oh, he, he established quite a sort of dynasty. But um, Armand Hammer was the, is American. I think it's New York or thereabouts. And he was the son of the leader of the American Communist Party. And so if you think about it, it's Arm and hammer like so it's like hammer and sickle arm and hammer so it's arm and hammer his actual name is taken from the symbol of the american communist party which is an arm holding a hammer Hammer. so his name is arm and hammer now so he has this communist um sort of ancestry or or heritage but he was an absolutely ruthless um, capitalist in every respect and with this sort of 
communist um, socialist sympathies. When the revolution started in Russia, he went there and he began to sort of work for the Soviet state and he was providing humanitarian aid and then he set up a pencil factory and he became a friend of Lenin and then of the administration and of Stalin and so on. And so when the Russians began selling the um, the crown, you know, the, the, the imperial treasures and, and others that had been confiscated, Armand Hammer was involved in that. Okay. And there were two directions. And so when you mentioned Watsky and Hammer, it's actually quite um, appropriate because in that period in the 1920s and 30s, the items that were coming to Western Europe, particularly England, were being channeled through Wartsky and Emmanuel Snowman. Those that were going to Russia were being channeled through Armand Hammer. Right. So, so, so from Russia to America, okay, yeah. were, were taken by Armand Hammer, and he would take them to America, and then he opened the Hammer galleries, and he was selling them in department stores. And oh, so, really? Uh, you know, he would stage exhibitions of Romanov treasures and take them to, you know, I think it was Lord and Taylor in New York, and he would sell them there, and then he'd go to other cities and do it. But he does have, again... Um, quite a sort of dark reputation there's I, that's what I kind of read yeah. particularly in that book um the Faber one yeah, yeah I think that he talks in that particular book that he talks about how he was quite very ruthless quite manipulative yeah and, and, and often kind of took took the eggs and didn't give the the aristocrats the well, much money but then sold them for yes, a lot in America it was and I think the other allegation again you know whether it's provable or not is, is that he was um faking them okay or if not faking them, certainly enhancing the provenance. You know, every clock and or every other was box it, was, it was, was from the, the, the bedroom of the Tsarina, <laughs> you know, grabbed by a Bolshevik from her bedside table and selling them with that provenance. Yeah. And of course, in America at this time, there were, in the 1920s and 30s, there was a huge fascination with the what had just been the murder of the imperial family in Russia. And these were the relics of that dynasty. You know, these yeah. were the intimate possessions of this sort of fairy tale story of emperors and empresses and, you know, tragic children with haemophilia, mad monks, Rasputin yeah. and murder and revolution and war. And so all of these came together to create this incredibly powerful story of which Fabergé was an integral part. And so was there quite a lot of competition between Kenneth Snowman and Armand Hammond? Emmanuel, there, there must have been. Emmanuel yeah, I don't really, there, there, there are no, no kind of... There, there's no institutional memory of that, there's no institutional legacy, but I, they were rivals, so there must have been. And who were Wartsky's kind of main clients in those days who bought these relics? Yeah, it was interesting because in England and America in particular... The First World War came, the revolution yeah. came, and in, in England and America, things changed, but really the same people who had the money and the power and the wealth before the war had it after the war. Now, in Russia, that was incredibly different, yeah. but in France, in Germany, and Italy, and elsewhere, there was more of a sort of change in the distribution of wealth and in the political sort of situation. But in, in Britain and America, the same people had the money. Now, in London then, before the war, not all of them, but many of this community of people would go to Fabergé. Fabergé was no longer there. Yeah. And then there's an interregnum where nothing happens. And then 10 years later, well, not even 10 years later, sort of eight years <clears throat> later, Wartsky is there with the Fabergé treasures. And so the clientele 
to a large degree of Fabergé migrated to Watsky. Right. And so, so you what, had a kind of brilliant database. Oh, it was there. It was, it, it was almost in those we, days. We were able to inherit a clientele which wasn't yeah. ours via the subject which we had become involved in. And so if you were interested in a Fabergé egg in 1914, Watsky would have a Fabergé egg in 1927. Yeah. And so therefore that there was a migration of people from there. And we do see it in our early ledgers. You can see customers of Fabergé in London becoming customers oh, really? of Watsky. And so Queen Mary, of yeah. course, was, was the primary one. And Queen Mary in this post-First World War period... Um, began acquiring Fabergé at a rate of knots and building, you know, a large part of the current royal collection. And Alice Keppel bought... Yeah, and Alice, she... What was it? She bought a cigarette case? She bought a cigarette a blue, case, a blue, and, a blue enamel cigarette case, which is a, a beautiful object commissioned from Fabergé in London and given by Alice Keppel to Edward VII, who was her lover. Yeah. But the case itself is a declaration of love. It's royal blue and the most silk-like enamel, sort of shimmering blue enamel. Um, but it's in, encircled by a diamond-set snake, which is an, an auroboros, which is an ancient symbol of love, because it's never-ending. Yeah. So it's never-ending love encircling a royal blue case, so it's never-ending royal love. And she gave it to the king. But then, but it's in, but it's obviously still in the royal collection. So it was, it's, it wasn't kind of thought of as. I suppose in those days, the king had a mistress. It was just a known it fact. Was, it was fine, and it was but nothing it, to be kind it, of ashamed of. No, I it, it wasn't. And I think again, you. I don't think Queen Alexandra would have been entirely happy with it, <laughs> but I don't think she was sort of unhappy with it either. I think, it, as you said, it was just an accepted part of of world and it wasn't just the king that was oh, doing it yeah. it was like throughout society it was sort of you know i think the, the mores that we have now and the sort of the inhibitions we have now did not exist no. there. well they they may have existed in the outer world but in the relationships and in that layer of that community of people they didn't exist and so you know it was not really thought of as being anything out of the ordinary to happen but there is a wonderful sort of tale attached to this case because when Edward VII died the Queen gave the case back to Alice Keppel now the first thing you could think there of that it's a sort of an, a, you know a sort of rebuttal that because you know you were the lover of my um, husband now he's dead I'm going to throw back to you everything <laughs> yeah. that you gave him but that wasn't the case because what the Queen was actually doing which is again hopefully um, evidence of her acceptance of the relationship is that she was returning Fabergé gifts to the people who had given them to the king as a remembrance, a souvenir of their relationship with him. Oh my goodness. And so these were like um, a communication of the relationship they had with the king. And I think that's what she was doing because there is evidence that she did it elsewhere as okay. well. But then when Alice Keppel, um, when Queen Alexandra died, Alice Keppel then gave the, the case back to Queen, Queen Mary, Mary and it then went into the Royal Collection. Okay. And how many eggs do they have? Three. They have three. So the Royal Collection has three eggs. Oh my gosh. All of which are being lent to the exhibition. Oh, wow. My golly, I just want to be able to kind of go around the exhibition all on my own, yeah, well. dressed in a ball gown. We need a sort of a, a, a fur cloak. Yeah, with, I with a Fabergé cloak clasp. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, 
And so, so a lot of these treasures were brought back. And when did Forbes not brought back? A lot of these treasures came from Russia through Armand Hammer and obviously Emmanuel Snowman. Um, in regards to the um, Americans, I mean Forbes had a, had a big collection. Did he buy them from he from from Hammer? Not from Hammer. I think Hammer had gone by the time Forbes started collecting. I think it was in the seventies that he started, but. Um, Forbes um, was Forbes of the Forbes American yes, publishing yeah. sort of fortune and had them in, in, in the Forbes building oh he had them in the, For- the Forbes building I can't quite remember I went there in New York and it was like a sort of a sort of slightly elderly skyscraper and in the foyer they had all the Fabergé Easter eggs <laughs> but he also collected toy soldiers and so there were the toy soldiers oh. there as well how weird. The weirdest place in the world to sort of have the Easter eggs. But Forbes became absolutely obsessed by Fabergé and the Easter egg story. You're just, can I quickly so run to the loo? Yeah, so I, I think now we should probably come on to the Fabergé eggs. Yes. That Forbes loved so well, that everyone loved so much. And um, obviously it's the last part of the exhibition and it's your big showstopper. Yes, the exhibition, um, and you've got a lot in the in in the exhibition. Yes, we do. It's we haven't quite got to the final number yet because this is in prior to the exhibition in preparation for it. We should, if if all comes off, um, which is a big if, we should have sixteen, which is the largest number that's been assembled for a generation. I, the largest group prior to this was in 1989 which um, you know I was practically a baby in so we, we will have the <laughs> largest number of Easter eggs um, for a generation of Easter eggs imperial of, Easter eggs imperial fetish Easter eggs so can we go right back which we did talk a little bit at, at the very beginning about you know they got the commission in 1885 to make the first Easter egg um, Fabergé by Alexander Alexander the first exactly yes. and it was a lot of was it based on an egg that was in the idea came from an egg that was in the Danish palace it, it was I mean what we have to very first sort of understand is is that Easter is the primary festival in Russia it sort of outweighs Christmas entirely it is the focus of the Russian Orthodox tradition and of course it has all of the idea of rebirth and the renaissance um, which is associated with it, which in Russia is particularly appropriate because it comes at spring and we all know Russian winters yeah. are sort of hideously awful. And so the arrival of spring is seen as a sort of wonder, a sort of you know, beginning of a new life and a new world. And it coincides with Easter. Yeah. And this tradition of um, celebrating Easter by the exchanges of Easter eggs is absolutely entrenched in Russian culture. And so Alexander III um, naturally celebrated it, as all layers of Russian society did. And in 1885, via Grand Duke Vladimir, he commissioned Fabergé to produce an Easter egg for his wife, Maria Fedorovna. Now, this is uh, an expression of many things. It's one of his relationship with Fabergé. Two, it's of the religious aspect of the... Of the um, of the festival of the, of, the, of the ritual of Easter is that it was a celebration of the rebirth of Christ but it's also an expression of his love for his wife 
And this first Easter egg, the 1885 one, is modelled upon an 18th century egg in the Danish royal collection. And so he commissioned it from Fabergé, gave it to the Tsarina, and the Tsarina was absolutely head over heels in love with this object. And from that, oh, wonderful. And from that was then born the annual commission for Fabergé. And it was actually Schuster. relatively simple oh, compared very... to, the, to, the, to, the, to the, those that we know now. Oh, you know, absolutely. To the others. Well, we have this egg in the exhibition. We have the first egg coming oh, from gosh. the Fabergé Museum in St. Petersburg. And I think that's... I was very keen early on because people know what Fabergé eggs are, but there is quite a difference between them. And there's a huge evolution from these very early examples to the later ones. Uh, the, the early ones, uh, the, the hen egg, which is the, the very first of 1885, is the size of a hen egg, whilst the Kremlin egg or the Tercentenary egg is pretty much like a sort of gem set rugby ball. <laughs> and so yeah, there is a difference in size, there's a difference in style, there's a difference really in the whole character of them from the early to the late. And we are, um, we are able to show that in the exhibition by having uh, two of the early ones, which are very small and discreet, almost sort of unrecognisable Fabergé eggs, to um, actually the very final Easter egg as well. So we have the first egg and we have the very last egg. And which is the last one? The last one is the Constellation egg, which was never completed. So we have the fragments from it, which are, is very intense and powerful to have because time overtook the production of this egg. Had nothing happened, it would have been given for Easter 1917, but war and revolution stopped it in its tracks. And so we have the fragments of this egg as far as the process had gone before and it stopped. And was it an absolutely magical, beautiful it egg? It was going to be the, an uh, incredible egg. It's, oh. it's an orb. It's a blue orb, which was going to show the constellation of... Um, in the sky on the day that Zarevich was born, set in diamonds. Gosh, how clever. I mean, it's... The imagination is... I mean, would, would the, the Tsar have said what he wanted, or no, did he literally leave it? Yeah. It was all left to Fabergé. Fabergé had the... And it was a very difficult commission, because he's there, and he's told to make an Easter egg. How different can you make an egg? One egg, and then you've got to make another egg. But how do you vary an egg? And so it was, it was brilliant. It's the, you know, to the subtle variations on form that allow this series of this commission to exist took intense effort to, yeah. to bring about. And the last one was Constellation in Diamonds when the Tsarevich was born on a cloud of rock crystal upon which Cupids, which is love, are holding this constellation aloft. Oh but, my but, gosh. but all we have are the orb, unset of stones, and the rock crystal base. But there is in um, Tatiana Fabergé's, um, the late Tatiana Fabergé's archives, there was a drawing for this egg. So we do know the final design for it, and we have those the components the that exist. And it's even more, the pathos is just you know, really, really intense, because the... Is that where it is? It's in the Firstman Museum, right. in, in, which is a wonderfully... It's all, I've got many favourite museums, but the Firstman Museum... Because he was the one who made the catalogue, wasn't he? He is, yes. The... Yeah. First, Firstman was the Russian sort of gemologist uh, yeah. uh, who was involved in cataloguing the 
confiscated treasures, but he was also a mineralogist, he was a scientist. And um, But the Fersman Mineralogical Institute, which is on the outskirts of Moscow, is just fabulous. And in it is this sort of Soviet collection of fabrics, all the bits that were taken by the Bolsheviks, well, not all of them, but many of the mm. pieces, the, the remnants of workshops of stones of odds and ends that were were brought together after the revolution were deposited at the first man mineralogical institute and they have the easter egg but the really intense part about it is is that it's based upon um an 18th century french clock design and the the symbolism of the design is that it's um love triumphing over time so then no matter how much time goes by, the love will remain as intense. Beautiful. And, uh, it is, but it's even more beautiful when, you know, did the Tsar know that his, by this stage, that his time was perhaps going to be up? And if he didn't know, it certainly was up very soon. So it's like a sort of declaration of endless oh, love, of, of, love of love beating time, when, of course, the time ran out for him. Oh my gosh, it's yeah, so moving. <laughs> don't worry, I'm not crying. Cry. I actually, I'm not crying. I actually had yes, an eyelash. Yes, you are. You are <laughs> I cry quite easily. Um, uh, yeah, very easily, in fact. And so, these eggs. So you had the first egg, and and one of the things which we we actually haven't mentioned, but which is so obvious in most of the eggs, is this incredible enamel that Fabergé um. did. Which could you, whilst you know, quickly kind of explain guilloche enamelling yeah. um, because it's well, yeah yeah no, no definitely well, the act in an earlier part of the exhibition we have um, a, a, a film a sort of audio visual they call it of, a, of the enamelling process so we actually show in detail how this happened and among all of Fabergé's sort of techniques the enamelling is the most prized yeah. I think it's the most recognisable part of his work and guilloche enamel is, in fact, engine-turned enamel. And so you have a pattern that's engraved on a piece of metal, gold, silver, and then by layering translucent enamel over it, that pattern appears as though it's captured within the enamel. And so you will get a sort of a moray silk wave engraved into metal. You then cover it with enamel, and it just becomes silk. My and this goodness. is what Fabergé is doing. Fabergé's like an alchemist almost. He's sort of playing with materials. He's manipulating them to become something in the perception of the viewer that they will not actually be. And this is what he's doing with this enamel. But it's incredibly difficult to do skillfully. And to um, do it on, on the curve of, on of, curve. of an egg. Yeah, to do it on a curve. There are so many factors here. It's the... The layers of enamel, it's the interaction between the transparencies or the opacities of those enamels, of the colours of the of the enamels, of the type of metal that's used, of the engraving process. It's and Bainbridge, who was Fabergé's London agent in his memoirs, describes Fabergé's workshops as laboratories of enamelling. And, oh, wow. and and they were laboratories of enamelling because they got it to such an incredibly fine pitch. And it is an incredibly complex process, and we do examine this in some depth in the exhibition. And in fact, one of the showcases is dedicated entirely to exemplary examples of Fabergé's enamelling. Oh my goodness. 
Um, thank God I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you are, because oh, also... Oh, no, I'm absolutely... Oh, I'm good. coming on the, on the 17th. Oh, you are. Day. Good, good, good. Yeah, no, because the, um, the tickets are selling out. Well, I know, I'm sure. Yeah, so the, I think the first... Well, first I think Laura would, would manage to get... Let's yeah. not put that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, back to the eggs. The eggs have this kind of incredible, I mean, historical fascination, whether it's in octopusy... Yeah. following you know Bond's short story whether it's um, you know uh, I'm trying to think of other I mean so many books and stories yeah. I, I interviewed um, Sophie Law the Russian expert at Bonham oh, yeah. about the novel that she wrote yes, called Olmsed yeah. which I loved um, and it's just this something you know it's just one of those things that you know you, you, you hope to find and, and so we're also one of the eggs which is going to be in the exhibition is this very famous egg the story yes. Yes. of this I mean incredible story that really is yeah. something out of a novel isn't it or a yeah. film oh, they are. I think the eggs are they've become sort of icons they're they're part of the popular culture you know, they're, they're a byword for luxury and when you leave anywhere it's the Fabergé egg of this the Fabergé yeah. egg of that and in fact they are the default plot device in whether it's from Peaky Blinders to James Bond to Ocean's Eleven or to every other crime novel that yeah. you open the Fabergé egg is the thing that's being stolen it's the thing that's the centre of the story and they are highly prized and the great, well, one of the great mysteries of Fabergé's Easter eggs is that they are so famous, they are so wonderful, but we don't know where they all are. Yeah. And up until very recently, there were, let me get this right, there were eight of them missing. And How many were there made? Well, f- 50 were delivered. Yeah. And so there were two that were conceived, the Constellation Egg being one of them, which was never actually delivered. But So 52 were conceived, 51... Well, 50 were made and delivered, so I think that's the measure we should take. 50 were made and delivered. Up until, well, almost, sort of just, well, recently, um, there were 42, the whereabouts of 42 of them were known. And I think the the, the story which you're referring to is just the miracle of yes. one of the missing Easter eggs walking into Wartsky. And it came into us in the most sort of remarkable set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. 